it's so much easier just to blame the big tech companies. And so what I want to do is to kind of lift the, the, you know, the veil here and help people realize that they are empowered. That in fact, by spreading this false narrative that there's nothing we can do, we're leading to what's called learned helplessness. Well, there's nothing I can do. My kids are constantly playing video games. Uh, it's not my fault, right? The companies, the algorithms, they're addicting everybody, right? Well, that leads to people not even trying. And so what I wanted to do was to share these techniques, which anyone can learn to become indistractable so that we are empowered, so that we can control the technology as opposed to the technology controlling us. Hey guys, and welcome back to the Take Flight Podcast. I'm your host, Mark Whittle, and this is where we speak with the world's best at what they do. Whether that's athletes and sports people, business founders and entrepreneurs, lifestyle specialists, yoga gurus, authors, and anything else in the world, this is where we speak with them, hear their advice, hear their stories, and understand what they feel led them to their success. All in the search of that formula for us to find success ourselves in whatever that thing is that we're chasing. This week, I'm delighted to bring a slightly different guest to the table. We've had some phenomenal athletes on over the last few weeks. And of course, as a sports addict and former athlete myself, I love hearing from those guys. But this week, I'm delighted to bring another very special guest with a slightly different background. The guest for episode 89 of the Take Flight podcast is the incredible Nir Eyal. Nir is a writer, a lecturer, and an investor. Nir has supported some of the most successful businesses in tech, including Eventbrite, which I use for the Take Flight events, Anchor, which again, I use as my podcasting host, and Kahoot, who have had huge success in the past few years, including many others as well that you would have heard of. As a lecturer, Nir teaches marketing at the Stanford Business School, the same school he actually graduated from in his master's in business administration. An amazing thing to have done. I actually also studied an MBA, but it certainly wasn't at Stanford. As an author, Nir has written two best-selling books, Hooked, How to Build Habit-Forming Products, and Indistractable, How to Control Your Attention and Choose Your Life. These are two of the most impactful books I have read in the last five years. They are two of the most recognizable books on bookshelves all across the world, and it was such an honor and pleasure to hear all of his advice firsthand on this episode. Nir's goal or mission is to have people use technology in a way that serves them as opposed to feeling like they serve technology themselves. I've often felt I serve technology when I get trapped in those triggers and those moments of boredom, or as you'll hear Nir talk about later on, those moments of pain avoidance by easily picking my phone up. And his advice is incredible. He is so impressive and intelligent, and I loved having him on to tell his story. I believe very strongly that tech is a positive thing when used in the right way, but so many of us don't know what that way is. There's no manual for this device that's tied to our hip or chained to our wrist that calls to us to check social media, calls to us to answer our emails immediately when we hear that notification, or rings off the hook and people expect us to be answering then and there. We're always available and to a certain extent expected to be available now, whether by work colleagues, managers, or even family members. Anir is focused on impacting our relationship with tech for the better so we can live healthier and happier lives. There's so much gold in here, so many tips that we can use in our lives, basic little things that you'll hear like the 10 minute rule when you feel called or pulled to look at your phone or whatever that distraction is, wait 10 minutes and see how you feel in 10 minutes. Studies have shown that we don't need it anymore after 10 minutes. It's so simple, but yet so powerful. I was actually so excited to have Nier on and I have to give a big shout out to BSG, my brother, Ben Sorgana, the co-founder of Rebel Book Club. He was on the podcast way back when, I think episode seven, he introduced me to Nier after doing a little campaign with him about his new book. 
but I was so incredibly excited to speak with Nir because I read Hooked about three years ago, which by the way, he originally self-published, which I love the fact that he did that himself and it just managed to blow up from there. But it was amazing to speak with him and hear the full story given that it is one of the most recognisable books right now. And having read it and loved it and found so much benefit from it in my life, it was special to be able to chat with him firsthand and ask more questions. His other book, most recently written and published in 2019, Indistractable, I read just before this chat. And in my opinion, it could be the most important book any of us could read right now for the reasons I mentioned before, but also because of the way that our psychology and the way that we have acted and possibly changed slightly during lockdown. Things like Netflix, YouTube, social media. You know, I've felt this particularly myself and I wonder whether any of you relate too, but I certainly feel like I am more susceptible to being distracted as I've been at home so much during lockdown. And I think that's built a possibly quite a negative habit or pattern even when I'm writing an email, you know, it's really easy mid-email when I don't know what the next sentence is going to be to just jump onto my phone and, and go on social media. And and Nir offers so much advice about how we can get away from that habit and how we can get away from creating patterns like that in our lives. Anyway, that's way too much for me. If you agree with anything that I've said in this introduction or anything that we talk about on the episode, I would love it if you would share this episode on your social media platform of choice. Let me know what you enjoyed. You can tag me at markwittle underscore TF on Instagram and Twitter. And you can tag near at N-A-L-99. That's spelled N-E-Y-A-L-99. There's a lot to digest. Thank you so much for supporting and listening. And I really hope you enjoy. Neil, welcome to the Take Fight podcast. Thank you. Great to be here. Oh, great to have you on. Really been excited. So Ben, uh, my good friend from Rebel Book Club, introduced us because he felt that it would be a good fit. And I'm really pleased to have you on, mate. I'm a big fan of your work. Thank you so much. That's an honor. I appreciate that. No, not at all. So you're just saying that you're in Singapore? Yeah, yeah. Here in Singapore. I live in New York City, but I'm here in Singapore on a uh, extended holiday, I guess you could say. <laughs> yeah. on a holiday. Here. <laughs> Do you spend much time there in the year anyway? No, no. I've been here a few times, uh, but uh, yeah, we decided it might be a, a nice place while uh, New York is is uh, trying to recover. Uh, uh, we thought we might not be a burden on the New York healthcare system for a bit and come out here for, <laughs> for some relative, uh, a relatively little bit safer place right now. Yeah. Oh, amazing. Good move. Am I right in thinking as well that you used to live in Orlando, Florida? I did. I grew up in a suburb of Orlando. Yeah. Ah, no, I, I, my parents used to have a place there. I was, I was very lucky. My, my mom and dad got a place there when we were younger. So I went over like every year pretty much. Oh, really? No kidding. Mm. Wow. You know, New York, I, I think Orlando is a, a really great place to to visit. Uh, I have a lot of great memories. I'm, I, I choose not to live there anymore. Nothing against Orlando. <laughs> <Yeah>. but, <laughs> you know, when you, when you grow up there, uh, it's, it's, uh, you kind of get sick of it, right? Like you get sick of the Disney, you get sick of like, it's, <laughs> it's too much sometimes you want to do something else. You, know, you want to think about something else. So, uh, yeah. I, 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 I often wondered. I often wondered as a kid, like it was so magical getting there as a as yeah. an English tourist and going to Disney and watching the Orlando Magic, and I often wondered what the residents thought. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's um, uh, there's like a whole other world, right? It's 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 like mm -hmm. you know with with London, you know, it's not all uh, uh, the Royals and fish and chips, right? Yeah, <laughs> there's like real life going on too. <laughs> oh, that's funny. Well, look, I'm I'm so pleased that we're chatting and. Um, I've got so many things I want to ask you. I've read both of the the books. I've read the, the blog a number of times as well. And yeah, this podcast is generally speaking, 
you know, at face value, it's about peak performance. So how can we get the best out of ourselves day to day? And a lot of the stuff we talk about is practices, habits, routines. So it's just, I can imagine we're going to get really deep into some of that stuff. And I'm, I'm very excited to do that. And hopefully people will see, see value from that. You are an author and a writer, but a, a lecturer as well and an investor as well. Which of those, I'm interested to know, which of those do you associate with most? Uh, for me, I think it's it's uh, an author. Uh, I think uh, writing is how I process and learn. Uh, I think that that's, you know, I think a lot of people have this perception that to be an author, you have to know something that you are going to then teach others. And uh, that's not necessarily my model. My model is I write because I want to learn something. And in the process, the byproduct of that learning process is a record of what I have learned. And the, the nice thing, uh, the amazing thing about the age we live in is that we no longer need uh, the gatekeepers that used to contain knowledge that it used to be knowledge was kept in a library and you had to have a university library card to get to the stacks so that you could read the information to then digest it into knowledge. Uh, and that's gone. That today, uh, anyone can have a PhD level education if they devote themselves to the topic. And so that's what happened with my uh, both my books. Uh, I don't hold a doctorate. I have a, a master's from from Stanford, but um, you know, I, my first book, How to Build Habit Forming Products, came from my curiosity around how do you build a habit forming technology? How do you build the kind of product that people use because they want to, not because they have to? And when I looked for a book on this topic, it didn't exist. And when I looked for a world expert to teach me, right, like where was the the doctor uh, who who had the the years of research experience to tell me how do you build a habit forming product? There wasn't such a thing, and so I had to go invent my own uh, expertise. And now, you know, after it, it turns out, if you spend five years uh, eating, breathing, sleeping a topic, you become the world expert in it. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> and so, not only can the internet connect us to the information to produce that knowledge, but also it helps us disseminate what we have learned in, an, in a way that's never been possible before. So, uh, you know, my story was I, I started blogging about this topic that was interesting to me. Uh, other people started reading it. One of my professors from Stanford happened to be one of those readers and invited me to, to uh, uh, come up with a curriculum for a class to teach at Stanford at the business school. And we did that for many years together. And then I went on to teach at the design school at Stanford. And then I, I uh, collated what I had uh, written and taught for many years into a book. I self-published the book. I you know wow. went to KDP and pushed print uh, uh, and self-published. Mm -hmm. Didn't have a, a, a professional publisher. The book started doing well. I got 100 five-star reviews. And then I get a call from an agent that says, you know, I think this book has a lot of potential. Why don't you sell it to a, a professional publishing house? And then it got picked up by Random House and off to the races. <laughs> so uh, I, I really am a testament to, uh, uh, I mean, if it weren't for the internet, I, I don't know what I would be doing. If I was born a generation or so ago, I had no idea. Like there would, there would be no idea. I didn't know this world was even possible. When, the way I grew mm. up was that, you know, a respectable job was a doctor, a lawyer, uh, a, 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 you know, a, a teacher, you know, that, those were the jobs. I had no idea that you could kind of make your own career in whatever subject you find interesting. 
so inspiring though. And that's why we're so lucky in this generation to be able to do that. I think that it's funny how many high achievers like yourself have got to where they are because they're the first doing that particular thing. Like, what's, I can't remember the saying exactly, but it's something like the first over the wall gets the bloodiest or something like that. So <laughs> can you can you relate to that? Absolutely, absolutely. And there's, <laughs> and there's, there's so many cases like that. So many of my uh, friends and colleagues that I've met over the years in this uh, this new profession of, 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 uh, of, of, you know, I, I, being an autodidact, I, I think that is this is such a critical skill, uh, for this generation and especially for the next generation to come is the ability to teach yourself mm-hmm. that that is such a critical skill, which is why a big reason why I wrote my second book indistractable, uh, which is the subtitle is how to control your attention and choose your life. Because I believe that you know the, we're, we're already seeing it now that the the length of time that someone stays in a profession or with a particular company as an employer that amount of time has has shrank uh, dramatically over the past several generations. You know, it used to be that when you worked in manufacturing, okay, your part your your job was to twist this widget every day for the rest of your life, and you expected that your company would would employ you forever and, you know, fund your pension. And then you, you know, have a few years of retirement and then you die. Uh, that's not the case anymore. Companies don't provide that kind of security. And frankly, people want a lot more than turning widgets all day long. Uh, and so the, the, the reality is that you have got to be able to educate yourself enough to be able to adapt to whatever's next. Uh, it's not that the strong survive, the adaptable survive. Right, that is the the most important trait. Right, evolution favors the this the 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 organism that can adapt to changes in its environment. And this is an age of constant change. Oh my God! Next week, uh, every week seems like uh, you know the world has changed dramatically uh, from from day to day, week to week, especially nowadays. And so, those people who can adapt quickly to change are the ones that will succeed. There's the ones who will see the opportunities, who will take advantage of those opportunities, who will improve the world, who will make life-changing innovations uh, will come from the kind of people who can quickly adapt. But we can only do that if we can focus. And so that was my big struggle was that I knew what I wanted to do and yet I didn't have the ability to follow through. And I think many people struggle with that, that it's, it's very difficult these days that with so much going on, with so much change happening all around us all the time, it can be dizzying, right? It can be, uh, you know, p- part of the, uh, the, the cost of having so much at our fingertips, so many options is that it's sometimes very hard to choose. There's too much choice. Uh, Kierkegaard said that anxiety is the dizziness of freedom, that because hmm. we live in, in an age of so much freedom, uh, infinite articles to read online, uh, you know, uh, our, uh, videos and, uh, you know, more videos that you can watch on YouTube in, in millions of lifetimes. There's never ending choice. There's so many options that we are dizzy with all this freedom. And of course, this makes us anxious that we can't focus. We can't concentrate on one thing at a time. And I think that critical skill of being able to choose your attention is how we control our life. That's how we become the people we want to be. And so that was a big reason why I wrote Indistractable because I wanted that skill for myself. I really wanted Hmm. to understand that superpower. It's so funny. I love that so much. And I can really relate because when I speak to people and have guested on other people's podcasts about my journey with Take Flight, it's exactly the same. I was in a bit of a 
bit of a pit of, uh, well, I found myself incredibly unfulfilled with the city job that I worked in. I worked for a, a tech company called Salesforce, who I'm sure you would have heard of, who in, talking about um, loyalty as well, funnily enough, um, when I first joined the company four years ago, I remember hearing that the average length of stay was 14 months and it blew my mind. And it, an employee's average tenure at the business was 14 months. I couldn't wow. believe it. Wow. But um, yeah, I, I started this podcast because I saw people doing great things and seemed happy, looked happy. So I wanted to speak with them about how. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I think that there is something, there is a reason that I think um, people who do things similar to what I do, do seem to be happier. <laughs> and I think, mm. I think it's because psychologically we know that one of the tenets of people who are more satisfied with life is their, um, their sense of agency. That we know that there's a direct correlation between feeling in control uh, mm. and feeling controlled. That when you feel like your life is not in control, when you feel like your life is being controlled by circumstances, you don't have as high of a sense of well-being. Uh, there's a, you know, we know that there's two factors that make for uh, a work environment, and I talk about this a, book, uh, a bit in my book, Indistractable, that there's a certain type of workplace environment that is correlated with the type of work environment that makes people crazy, literally leads to depression and anxiety disorder. And those type of work environments, it's not, it's not the work you do, by the way. If I asked you, okay, what kind of jobs make people depressed? What kind of jobs are correlated with, with clinical depression and anxiety disorder? Most people, what I would think is, oh, it's a sad job, right? Like uh, if, you were, uh, 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 if you worked in a slaughterhouse or if you were a mortician, oh, that would lead to depression, right? That's a sad job. No, it has nothing to do with the job you do. It has to do with the job environment you do it in. And it turns out that people who work in an environment with two factors, high expectations and low control, okay? High expectations and low control. If you have high expectations and high control, no problem. You can, you can flourish psychologically. But if you have high expectations with low control, that is a psychologically toxic environment that leads to depression and anxiety disorder. And so that, I think that's what changes when you choose what you do you can still have very high expectations, right? I think I perform at a higher level than I ever have in my professional career, but I'm so much happier than any other time in my life because I am in control, right? It's high expectations with high control as opposed to in my last job, high expectations, low control because my boss was constantly in control, not me. <laughs> it's so good. Um, funnily enough, I've just started a new practice in the morning. I've always meditated, but in the last three, four weeks, I've added 10 minutes of visualization on at the end. And it, every single morning, the visualization starts with autonomy. It starts with me being able to pick my morning, my morning routine, and then go into the rest of my day, choosing how it's mapped out. And the bit that you just drew on there from your book is exactly what I screenshotted the other day and sent to my friend. <laughs> because a lot of these companies, particularly sales companies that enforce targets on people um, and you know chop and change territories or accounts that people are working with and which is completely out of their control mm. leads people down that path of feeling, you know, depressed because they're aiming for something that's beyond either their skill level or what they're even able to do because the territory they've been given or the you know, the environment that they're given to do it in and the resources. Yeah, that, that, that's absolutely right. And, and that's why I focus on the antidote to that problem. It has a lot to do with how we manage our time. 
that uh, you know a lot of the output in our life we cannot control. Uh, you you know as as an author, if I sit down and I say, okay, I need to write three hundred words, or I need to finish this chapter, or you know whatever it is, I don't always have control over that. I can't mm. promise that I will write my best. You know, when you write a book, it doesn't flow out of you on the page exactly as the reader is going to read it. You know, sometimes you have good days, sometimes you have not so good days. Same thing with sales calls. You know, I was one of my first uh, jobs after I, I, I quit consulting. Uh, I was in the solar energy business, and a big part of my job, uh, this company that that I co-founded, was dialing customers. You know, and sometimes I'd have a great day, and we'd book a lot of, of sales calls, and sometimes I've had a terrible day, and almost nobody would 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 respond positively. You don't always control the output. What you do control always is the input, is the time. And so that's why I counsel people to, when it comes to how to become indistractable, a big part of that is to get rid of your to-do lists. That I think, you know, we all have heard this doctrine that to-do lists are the way to be productive, right? That if you want to succeed, you got to have a to-do list because some guru or some guru's friend told us that, that that's what we're supposed to do. And for most people, it really screws them up. Uh, that, that it's not that to-do lists are always bad. It's that most people don't use them correctly. Most people have a to-do list and that's how they judge how well they did for the day, right? How much stuff did I finish? How many check marks did I get for the day? And this is really terrible for a couple of reasons. Number one, what tends to happen, and this used to happen to me all the time when I kept a to-do list, is that I would start my day uh, by doing the easy stuff, right? Because <laughs> that feels good. Oh, look at that. Look how many check marks I just got, right? <laughs> right? Do the easy stuff. And of course, I prioritize the easy at the expense of the important. Uh, another problem is that when, when I ask most people, you know, when was the last time you didn't finish everything on your to-do list? People who are, are devotees of this technique, I say, when was the last time you didn't finish everything on your, on your to-do list? I already know the answer. The answer is um, yesterday and the day before <laughs> that. And actually all of last week, actually, wait a minute, I never finish everything on my to-do list. And of course I know the answer because I used to do that all the time. I'd go day after day and wouldn't finish. And people don't realize what a terrible toxic effect this has on their psyches. That if day after day you prove to yourself that you do not live with integrity, you do not do what you say you're going to do. Another day goes by and you said you would do all these things and yet again you didn't, loser, you begin to believe that. You begin to believe that it's okay to not do what you said you were going to do. And that bleeds into all different kinds of areas in your, of your life, and it's extremely toxic. So we don't want to measure ourselves based on output. We want to measure ourselves based on the input. Did we put in the time to work on those tasks regardless of the output? Because the output is not always in our control. And we can talk about, That's by the way, if you're interested, I don't want to go on too long, but if you want to know what to do instead of the to-do list, yes. we can go into that as well. <laughs> that was literally my next question. Please, yeah. what do we do instead? Because I'm a serial to-do list writer and I've even yeah. got it stuck up here on my wall. So what, yeah. what, what can we do instead to make sure we, I suppose, feel more comfortable with how, how we're achieving things in the day? Sure. So the antidote here, the, the solution, the much better approach is to use what we call time boxing. So, to, and you can use these two in conjunction, right? It's not that to-do lists per se are bad. It's that it's using to-do lists to guide your day is bad. That's the problem. That's where 
you end up doing the easy stuff first and where you never finish everything on your list. And so you, you judge yourself as, as not having personal integrity because look, you didn't do what you said you're going to do. So the solution is to use time boxing. So immediately when you have those to-do lists, you can keep a temporary register of things you need to you know, work on. That's fine. But immediately put that into your calendar as soon as you can, right? Don't let your to-do list guy, or, uh, don't let your, your to-do list dictate how you spend your day. Your calendar has to dictate how you spend your time. So what I want people to do is to block out in their calendar every minute of their day. Because here's the thing, you cannot call something a distraction unless you know what it distracted you from. Let me say that again, it's a really important point. You cannot call something a distraction unless you know what it distracted you from. So most people, they complain and moan about how distracting the world is, how somehow because of the news and Twitter and their boss and their kids, they just didn't get things done because they're so distracted these days. And yet when you say, well, how did you plan to spend your time? Show me your calendar. It's a bunch of white space, right? There's nothing on there because they didn't plan their day. So you can't call something a distraction unless you know what you got distracted from. What did you get distracted from? There was nothing there. So you have to plan out every minute of your day because now with a time boxing technique, and this, by the way, this isn't something I made up. This has been validated in thousands of peer-reviewed studies. There's over 30 pages of peer-reviewed studies cited in my book uh, that you can see. This isn't something I I made up. This has been validated again and again and again, that when you judge yourself, not by what did you finish, but rather by how by what by rather did you do i'm sorry did you work on whatever it is you said you were going to work on for as long as you said you would that's your metric of success did i work on what i said i would work on for as long as i said i would without distraction that's it okay whether it's 15 minutes 30 minutes an hour doesn't matter did i work on what i said i was going to work on for as long as i said i would why is that such a different way of looking at this because as opposed to only judging myself as successful when I finish, now I'm judging myself by whether I, I worked on that task without distraction for as long as I said I would. That's my only metric. So what happens at the end of a time box session is I said, okay, another half an hour, another time box passed, and I did what I said I was going to do. Now I'm building a different self-image. Now I'm building a self-image as someone who does what they say they're going to do. And here's the kicker. Here's the, here's the real moral of the story. People who keep time box calendars actually finish more, they accomplish more than the people who keep the to-do list because they <laughs> hold themselves accountable to the time they spend on a task rather than completing the task. Amazing. Where, where do you do or when do you do the time boxing? Is it the night before or do you do it in the morning when you get up? I, I do it once a week. So I do it on okay. Sundays. There's actually a time in my calendar to plan my calendar. <laughs> so every nice. Sunday I have time in my calendar in the evening where I look at my week ahead and I plan out every minute of the day. And actually there's a, a link I can share with your listeners. I actually built a tool. There's nothing, it's totally free. You don't have to sign up for anything. It's at nearandfar.com forward slash schedule hyphen maker. I'll say it again. It's nearandfar.com, near like my first name, N I R and far.com forward slash schedule hyphen maker. Very simple tool that gets you started to help you build that time box calendar. But you can do this in Microsoft Outlook. You can do it in Google Calendar, any kind of calendar. You can use a pen and paper for all I care. It doesn't matter. Yeah. 
the idea here is that the reason I, I keep my calendar in, in, uh, in Google Calendar, because once it's set the first time, it takes you maybe 20, 30 minutes to do it the first time. But after that, now you're making small tweaks. From week to week, you're asking yourself this question, how can I make my calendar easier to follow in the week ahead? And so you can look at that calendar and you can say, okay, where did I fall off track? Where did I mess up? Where did I get distracted? And now you can adjust it and say, oh, this might need a little bit more time. This might need a little less time. Oh, I have that meeting coming up, which means I need time to move something around. But you're doing that once a week. And once you set that schedule, that's it. You're locked in. So for every, you know, we, we know that people spend a hell of a lot of wasted time deciding what to do for every minute. Multiple times a day, people say, what should I do next? What should I do next? What should I do next? But when you make that calendar, you save all that time. You know exactly what to do next. It's on your calendar. <laughs> <laughs> so good. You know what? There was a period last year because this is a, a side hustle still with balancing, you know, social life, other full-time job, et cetera, et cetera, health and fitness. So there was a period last year where I did actually do this every Sunday, probably only did it for like six or seven weeks. And it had such a profound impact on me. So I'm going to have to go back to it. And interestingly, what you were speaking about there with regards to keeping, basically it's keeping a promise to yourself, isn't it? We had a guy called Ed Milet. I don't know if you're, you're familiar with Ed Milet. He does great stuff. American guy as well. who lives over in, um, in LA. Um, who spoke about how you build self-confidence, self-belief and self-worth is purely by just saying, I'm going to do this and then carrying it out. Yeah, that's exactly right. That this is, you know, one, one of my uh, uh, slogans is behavior change necessitates identity change. Hmm. That if we are going to change our behavior, whatever it is that you want to change in your life, you want to get in shape, you want to uh, uh, accrue wealth, you want to have better relationships. You want to find the love of your life. You want to uh, have have a close friendship with your children, your parents, your whatever it might be. Whatever you want, whatever behavior you want to facilitate in your life requires an identity change. And so whatever we can do to reinforce that identity makes it much more likely that we will live out that vision, that moniker, that that, that identity that we want to then pursue. So absolutely, behavior change necessitates identity change. Mm, it's so good. I think there was a, a, a passage in your book where you spoke about a study that talked about saying, I don't versus I can't. Right, right. Thought, it's amazing. Which I thought was brilliant. Yeah. yeah, so this study knocked my socks off. And and I'm I'm pretty skeptical of new research. You know, there's been a, a, a replication, what we call the replication crisis in the social sciences, where a lot of studies that we thought uh, were, were true, turns out you can't replicate. But this happens to be one that we, we, we think of. there's a, a, quite a bit of evidence that this is the case, that based on the kind of words we use uh, to describe ourselves and our behaviors can have a profound impact on what we will actually do. So the, the, the seminal study around this that really blew my mind was around voting, that they called uh, voters in the United States, and they, they had two groups. And one group, they asked them, how likely would you be uh, to vote on a certain date? Uh, uh, yeah, I think that's right. Yeah, how, how, likely, would you, are, are, how likely are you to vote? Uh, and then the other one was, how likely are you to be a voter? Okay, small difference. How likely are you to vote versus how likely are you to be a voter? And you think, well, what, 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 what good could that do, right? Just a simple question. Well, it turns out that they could track back these public records of who actually voted. 
And it turns out the people who said that they would that they were a voter, they were likely to be a voter, meaning the, the noun versus the verb form, were several times more likely to actually go vote. So the difference between saying, I am a voter, this is something I am versus something I do, had a profound impact on whether they actually did the behavior. And of course, this makes perfect sense when you think about how when someone calls themselves a vegetarian, or mm. uh, a, a devout Christian, or whatever the case might be. When you have a modern- an entrepreneur or- an entrepreneur, author. exactly. Yeah, indistractable. Yeah. This is why I called the book yeah. indistractable because mm -hmm. this is an identity I want people to cement in their minds. You know, a vegetarian doesn't wake up in the morning and say, hmm, should I have a bacon sandwich for breakfast? No, they don't do that because they <laughs> are vegetarian. It is who they are, it is part of their identity. And so, it means you don't need willpower and self-control because your identity keeps you on track. And so using that is is very, very powerful. Again, how, how our identity can shape our behaviors. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I, I recently was speaking with a friend of mine and talking about when my identity shifted around my fitness habits and you mentioned health and fitness then as well. And I stopped speaking to myself and being in my mind and being motivated from a place of ego, basically in a pursuit of, of bigger muscles <laughs> for the beach. <laughs> and I shifted that as an identity and spoke to myself as in like, I am fit, I am athletic. And it just changed, changed everything. It made it more consistent. It meant I was going for the right reasons. It made me happy and everything. Right. Right. Um, that's what, that's what an athletic, that's what an athlete does. Right. Mm. The same happened when, when I started calling myself a writer, what does a writer do? Yeah. A writer writes, right. I'm not, uh, I, 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 that, that really did, did change my mind that I started identifying myself as that kind of person. Yeah, it's so good. So Nir, I've got the book here. It's brilliant. And in my opinion, this is the, and I'm not just saying this because you're on the podcast, but in my opinion, this is the most important book that anybody can read right now. Oh, thank you. So I really appreciate that. That's a huge honor. You know, I, 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 I really appreciate that. Uh, and I, I want to, I want to tell you that I, I wrote the book, uh, for me <laughs> selfishly. And I think mm -hmm. it's really reflected in the book because I really struggle with this problem. You know, I, I have always struggled with willpower and self-control. I used to be, uh, clinically obese in one point in my life. Now I'm in the best shape of my life. Uh, I have better relationships with my family than ever before. I do better work than I ever have before all because I could stop getting in my own way. I could just do the things I know I wanted to do. So it was a very personal journey. So while I'm thrilled that you find it so helpful, <laughs> it makes my day. Uh, the, 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 the book to me was a success no matter how many copies it sold because it finally fixed my own problem that I had with distraction. Oh, amazing. But I think it's because so many can relate to it. It's distraction, particularly with the way that tech is innovating and everything else that's going on in the world is just around every corner. And I think I don't know whether because I'm starting to move more into this online world with podcasting and things being remote and generally having to be on my phone more. But I have massively found myself addicted and pulled into my phone over and over and over again. And, and so many of the examples you use in the book of being pulled in, you know, when you're at dinner, for example, and your partner goes to the bathroom and, and you sat on your own and without even thinking within milliseconds, <laughs> you're, you're on your phone. And so many other countless examples that I struggle with day to day. But one of the things that struck a chord with me immediately, which is quite early on in the book, is how distraction is our avoidance from pain and we and, and the, the things that we haven't ultimately addressed yet 
Right. And I just thought that was really profound because it's it kind of takes more of a, a philosophical, almost spiritual uh, stance there. And, you know, I've done, we talk about it on this podcast, you know, I, you know, I meditate every day and soul searching has been a big part of my journey in the last five years. And I just thought that was incredible. And, that, and that's what it is. It's when you feel uncomfortable, you look to the easiest distraction, which for us at the minute seems to be our smartphones. And I just yeah. thought it was amazing. Yeah, thank you. No, that 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 is a big uh, part of the book, and that was a big revelation for me because when I started to write the book, I I thought uh, that the problem was the technology. All right, I kind of came from that perspective of well, this seems to be what is distracting me, so it must be the device's fault, right? It's Facebook's fault, it's the iPhone's fault, it's Instagram's fault because that's what I keep turning to. But uh, I tried the conventional advice, right? I read the books that tell you to, you know, to go on a digital detox or uh, put your phone away for 30 days. And I, I tried that. And in the very same way that when I was clinically obese, I went on these fad diets. You know, I would do 30 days, no fat. No, nah, that didn't work. 30 days, no carbs. No, nah, that didn't work. 30 days, no fat food, mm -hmm. no fast food. And you know what I did on day 31 every single time, right? <laughs> I would make it for lost time. I would eat more and then some. And that's because um, as much as I wanted to blame the food, right? As much as I wanted to blame, you know, crisps for being so delicious and uh, blame chocolate for being so delicious and blame, you know, all the food for, for being so good, that's really not why I overate. Right, I overate for the same reason many people overeat. We eat our feelings, you know. I would overeat when I was bored. I would overeat when I was depressed. I would overeat when I felt shameful for how much I had eaten, and so I would eat more to escape that feeling. And so this is this is a, a very um, uh, an, an analog for what we do when it comes to all sorts of distraction. And I, I think, you know, what, one thing we, we didn't talk about, I think is very, very important is to understand what is distraction really, you know, this term that we keep using, what, what does that mean even? So the best way to understand what distraction is, is to understand what distraction is not. What is the opposite of distraction? So most people will say the opposite of distraction is focus, but that's not actually true. The opposite of distraction is not focus. The opposite of distraction is traction. That if you look at the origin of both words, they both come from the same Latin root, trahare, which means to pull. You'll notice also that they end in the same six letters, A-C-T-I-O-N, that spells action. So traction is any action that pulls you towards what you want to do, things that you do with intent, things that move you towards your values and help you be the kind of person you want to become. The opposite of traction is distraction. Any action that pulls you away from what you plan to do, anything that is not in accordance with your values and the person you want to become. So this is really important for two reasons. Number one, we find that anything can be a distraction, right? How many times have you sat down at your desk like I used to do and say, okay, uh, I know I need to work on this big project right now. Here I go. I'm going to get started. Nothing's going to get in my way. I've got this big project that I've been procrastinating on. I'm not going to procrastinate. I'm not going to get distracted. I'm going to get started right now. Here I go right away. But first, let me check some email, right? Because email is a work-related task. Email is kind of a productive thing to do, right? Wrong. If it's not what you plan to do in that moment, it is just as much of a distraction as playing video games. Even worse, because at least if you're playing a video game or checking Facebook, you know you're slacking off, 
right? You know you're not doing what you plan to do. But if you're checking email, oh, you rationalize it and say, oh, let me just check this quick email because that's that's something I have to do anyway. Or let me check that thing on my to-do list because that feels kind of good. Let me do that easy task. And you're prioritizing the easy and the urgent at the expense of the important. And so anything can be a distraction. Conversely, anything can be traction. So a big part of the book is to push back on this narrative that tech is hijacking our brains, that it's addicting all of us, that it's somehow bad for us. That is baloney. It is not true. Mm. It's an excuse. It's not the technology. Just like I had to stop blaming chocolate for my being overweight, it wasn't the food. It was why I was consuming the food. And the same goes with the technology, that the reason we overuse is not because there's anything inherently bad about these things. If you want to spend time on Facebook or Instagram or Netflix, do it. That can be an act of traction as long as you do it on your schedule, not the tech companies. So there's nothing wrong with any of these tools as long as they are used in accordance with your schedule, not somebody else's. You can turn distraction into traction based on making time for it. So part of the, the, the brilliance of this technique that I didn't come up with, this idea of time boxing, is that you schedule time for the leisure too, right? So many people, especially people who keep to-do lists, they have no idea what it's like to actually enjoy time off. Because even when you come home from work and you say, I just want to relax with my kids, I just want to watch something on Netflix, I just want to watch a game and chill out, you're still thinking in the back of your mind, oh, I've got those emails. I've got those to-dos I didn't finish. I've got all that crap that I didn't do. And you can never actually be at peace. That only happens when you say to yourself, this is exactly what I plan to do. You know, you know why? Because I planned it on Sunday, what I'm going to do on Thursday. I plan to play with my kids for an hour. That's exactly what I'm going to do. I plan to watch a movie. I plan to watch video games. I'm going to enjoy it fully. So why do we get distracted? Why don't we do what we say we're going to do? Why, what leads us away from traction and towards distraction? It's what we call internal triggers. That distraction and procrastination are not character flaws. Okay, There's nothing wrong with you. It's that we don't know how to deal with emotional discomfort. That the reason we go off track is always because of an uncomfortable emotional response, which is why I say another one of my slogans is that time management is pain management. Time management is pain management. That fundamentally, the reason we drink too much, watch too much news, watch too much Facebook, uh, or play too much Facebook, watch too much football, whatever the case might be, whatever is distracting us from what we say we will do, it's always about a need to escape discomfort fear, uncertainty, boredom, fatigue, anxiety. It is our inability to deal with these uncomfortable states that leads us to distraction. So that has to be the first step is understanding that time management is pain management, have techniques at our disposal that we can use to deal with that discomfort in a healthier manner. That's how we begin to master these internal triggers. So that's step one to becoming indistractable. Amazing. It, if we're talking about addressing some of these things that make us feel uncomfortable, I'm assuming you're going to say yes, that you do time box time in your week to, to do that. Do you have any sort of practices or methods that you've used? Because that's ultimately, that's the root problem, isn't it? And that's what we're trying to get down to. Yeah. Is there anything that's particularly worked for you? 
Sure. Yeah. So there's dozens of different techniques in the book. Uh, one of the tactics that I that I advise and I use all the time, I use probably every single day, is called surfing the urge. And the idea here is that you know we need to realize that um, you know I think the self help industry has fed us a lie, which is that somehow we're supposed to feel good all the time. That the goal should be to be happy constantly. Uh, I don't know where we got this idea. That is not the way that human beings have evolved. I mean, think about it logically for a second. If we were meant to be happy all the time and contented, imagine if there was ever a, 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 a group of homo sapiens, there was a tribe of people who lived somewhere who was always happy. What would happen to that tribe if they had met normal people? Would they have survived? Of course not. Our ancestors probably killed and ate them. Right. <laughs> That's the reality that being contented all the time is not evolutionarily beneficial. Our species evolved to be perpetually perturbed. So we have to come to grips with the fact that feeling bad is not bad. What drives us to be better, to excel, to improve, to innovate is dissatisfaction. Right. We don't create unless we are dissatisfied with the status quo. So there's nothing wrong with feeling bad. It's about what we do with that discomfort. Do we use it as rocket fuel to help propel us towards traction? Or do we look to escape it with our phones, with television, with another shot of something to drink to take our mind off of that feeling? So that's the difference. It's about asking ourselves, how can I use that internal trigger to lead me towards traction rather than distraction. So one technique that I use almost every single day is called surfing the urge. Because you know, many times in what I do, uh, I feel these internal triggers. I'll, I have time every day to write. And writing's hard work. I've written two bestsellers and countless blog posts and articles. And every time I write, it's hard. <laughs> it's never easy. It's hard work. And many times, all I want to do is just Google something real quick or check email for a, a quick moment or, you know, just do something else, right? Go make myself a cup of coffee for a quick second. And what I have to do is to remind myself that, no, anything else is a distraction. What I plan to do was to write. That is traction for that moment. And what I try and uh, what I get myself now in the, in the routine of doing is that when I feel that discomfort, when I feel that urge to do something I don't want to do. I use what's called the 10-minute rule. And the 10-minute rule, by the way, is as effective with getting you to focus on your work and not on Facebook as it is to get you to not eat that chocolate cake that you know you shouldn't have or smoke that cigarette that you're trying not to smoke. Here's how the 10-minute rule works. The 10-minute rule says that you can give in to any urge, any distraction, but not right now. You can give in to it in 10 minutes, okay? 10 minutes, not right now, in 10 minutes, you can have that chocolate cake. In 10 minutes, you can check email. In 10 minutes, you can smoke that cigarette. Not right now. And for those 10 minutes, you have one of two things to do, and only one of these two things. You can either get back to the task at hand, okay, do whatever it is you plan to do, or surf the urge. Here's how surfing the urge works. Surfing the urge is about riding out these sensations, these uncomfortable urges, like a surfer on a surfboard. Because one of the myths that our brains play, or one of the tricks, I should say, that our brains play on us is 
the brain tricks us into thinking that whatever we feel right now, we will always feel. But of course, that's never true. That when you're mad, you feel like, oh, I'm gonna, I feel so mad, I'm going to always be mad. Or when you're depressed or when you're sad or when you're anxious, you don't know when that emotion will end. And so what surfing the urge teaches us to do is to simply sit with that sensation and explore it with curiosity rather than contempt. Most people, they work themselves into this rumination loop where they, they, tell, they beat themselves up for feeling a certain way. And they don't realize that you have no control over your feelings. You can't control how you feel. You can only control how you respond to those feelings, hence the word responsibility. So your job to surf the urge is to just sit there for 10 minutes and ask yourself, how am I feeling right now? Where is this coming from? Okay, I'm feeling anxious. I'm feeling bored. Why am I feeling bored? Well, you know, this is the part, part of the process of becoming a better writer is struggling through uncertainty. Okay, well, that's part of the struggle. Okay, I'm getting curious about the sensation. And that process of getting curious helps me surf the urge. And what you will find is that 10 minutes seems like no time. But actually, for those 10 minutes, what you will find is that nine times out of 10, if you give yourself that, that space to just surf the urge, by the time those 10 minutes are up, and now you are allowed to give into that temptation, the urge is gone. It's dissipated, mm -hmm. just like a wave that crests and then subsides. That's what tends to happen with these emotions. So that's a technique I use almost every single day, the 10-minute rule. This is so good. Yeah, I've been doing it since I read the book. It's incredible for developing your own self-awareness and particularly when we're in a world of instant gratification, when everything is at our fingertips, just to give yourself a bit of, it's mental toughness, I think, as well, and building your willpower, which is, is so important. Do you know, I'm fascinated to know what it was like for you to write the book Hooked, which is arguably, you know, your Silicon Valley's favorite author, <laughs> writing a book about building habit-forming products, and then write a book about basically hacking back your time away from some of these products that people are, uh, are building and using day to day. What, what was that like? Yeah, so the idea is that these are different products, right? I didn't write yeah. a book for the benefit of Facebook and Twitter and Instagram. I mean, the, you know, these companies were, were around years, sometimes decades before I wrote my book. Those companies are the, the companies that I reveal the secrets for how, how they do it. You know, my book came out in 2014. Facebook was started in 2006. You know, they, these companies came out way before my book. That's who I learned from. So I didn't teach Facebook. I exposed how these techniques are used <laughs> okay. for the benefit of companies that use these techniques to help people build the kind of products that build healthy habits in their life. Hmm. So since the book came out, Companies like uh, Kahoot, the world's largest educational software company, uses the hooked model to help get kids hooked to education. Uh, companies like Fitbod use the hooked model to help people get, in, get hooked to exercise. So there's all kinds of ways. I mean, in, in every conceivable industry, from healthcare to, uh, uh, to uh, all, you know, basically every industry I, I, I've come across, you can use these tactics to help people build good habits in their life. Now, given how much I know about this field, I don't think we should throw out the baby with the bathwater, that it's not about the techniques, it's about how they are applied, right? There's nothing wrong with getting people hooked to uh, software that they use at work. You know, what, you know, think about the kind of software you have to use at work. 
it sucks. It doesn't suck us in. It just sucks, <laughs> right? Or <laughs> software to help people uh, exercise more, or save money, or whatever the case might be. These are the kind of products and services that use the hook model to help build healthy habits. Now, when you study habits a lot, as I have for over a decade, I also understand the Achilles heel. And I understand how we can break the bad habits from some of these companies as well. And I'll tell you that the popular narrative is that we are powerless, that these companies are addicting us, that they're hijacking our brains. And that is such a pernicious thought pattern because we, we want to think that. We want to believe that there's a pusher, right? An addiction needs a pusher, a dealer, someone who's doing it to us. But that's not true, right? Do, do these products addict some people? Of course, you know, people get addicted to all kinds of things. Alcohol is highly addictive, but does everyone who has a pint at dinner, uh, are they alcoholics? Of course not. So why do we think somehow everyone is addicted to social media? It's not an addiction. For some people it is, a very small proportion of the population, it is an addiction. But for the vast majority of us, 95 to 99% of the population, it's not an addiction, it's a distraction. So I want, but of course, when we call it a distraction, that's no fun. Oh, now I got to do something. Mm -hmm. about it. Oh, that sucks. It's so much easier just to blame the big tech companies. And so what I want to do is to kind of lift the, the, you know, the veil here and help people realize that they are empowered. That in fact, by, by spreading this false narrative that there's nothing we can do, we're leading to what's called learned helplessness. Well, there's nothing I can do. My kids are constantly playing video games. Uh, it's not my fault, right? The companies, the algorithms, they're addicting everybody, right? Well, that leads to people not even trying. And so what I wanted to do was to share these techniques, which anyone can learn to become indistractable so that we are empowered, so that we can control the technology as opposed to the technology controlling us. Yeah, it's superb. And look, yeah, I want to be respectful of your time because I know we're going over a little bit already. <laughs> I've got so That's many right. questions for you. Um, we do the same three questions, quick fire at the end. Is that okay? We've got enough time just to squeeze these. Sure, yeah, let's do it. Okay, awesome. So we do these same three so people who are listening can immediately implement these actions into their life and hopefully drive their performance forward. So the first of these things are, is there anything specific you've come across, discovered, got coming up that you're particularly excited about? Um, in terms of, of discovery, you know, I, I'll, I'll, uh, I think that I'm not, I'm not done with my excitement around being indistractable. I think that this is really the superpower of the century. And so, uh, I'm not really working on any new books at the moment. I really want to, uh, uh, help the world become indistractable as many people as possible to spread this message. I want this to become a moniker that people call themselves with pride that I am indistractable. Brilliant. Okay. Amazing. The second of these three, which is going to be interesting coming from you. If you had to give every single listener only one habit that was going to drive their performance that they could practice each day, what would it be? One habit. So this is tricky because I know a lot about habits. I think I, mm. <laughs> and so, you know, habits are by definition are behaviors done with little or no conscious thought. Uh, and that's different from a routine. A routine is just a series of behaviors frequently repeated. And a lot of people get those confused. They say, oh, I want to build a writing habit. Eh, not really, because writing is not done with little or no conscious thought. Oh, I want to build an exercise habit. Well, if you do it with little or no conscious thought, sure, if taking a walk is something you do with little or no conscious thought, great, it could be a habit. But if you're trying to you know, max out and like get better and faster and stronger, that's not a habit. That's a routine because it requires a lot of, of, of little or no conscious thought. 
Um, but I would say in terms of maybe, a, maybe routine, then. a routine, maybe okay, routine. Here. okay, let's do that. Episode eight, episode 89, I think we are. I have to change the question. Okay, no problem. <laughs> One routine. Yeah, I'll, I'll give you a link to an article that explains the difference as well. But I Thank think, okay, so let me say routine because that's easier. Habits are a little tricky. Um, a routine would be to take advice from your parents and have a bedtime that we all know sleep is important, but how many people actually have a bedtime? And I know you're you're a father to be, and you're going to tell your your mm-hmm. child you have to have a bedtime. And I encourage all of us to take our own advice uh, and have our own bedtimes. Brilliant. Okay, that's a great one. That's a really good one. And the last of these is speaking about your own um, performance, I suppose, and your own achievements. You've done so much, as you said. You've got two bestsellers. You're a lecturer at Stanford and investor in great companies. You'll be happy to know I've recently moved to Anchor as well as my host. Nice, for, very good. For my podcast, <laughs> who you invested in. <laughs> um, if you had to nail it down to one trait that's allowed you to get to where you are, what would you say that one trait is? Curiosity. Uh, there's mm. a great quote. I don't remember who said it, so I apologize. But there's a great quote that says, "The antidote to boredom is curiosity." there is no antidote for curiosity. Uh, Hmm. That if you can follow your curiosity, whatever it might be, if you can chase that, that is a source of infinite entertainment and joy. That's brilliant, amazing, that's so good. It's been such a pleasure. I've really enjoyed it. I had a grin on my face the entire conversation. So thank you so much. Oh, my pleasure, this was a lot of fun. Thank you so much for having me. There it is, guys. Thank you so much for listening, tuning in. As mentioned in the intro, if you did enjoy any of this or there was anything particular that stood out, I'd love to hear what that is. If you could share that on your social media platform of choice and I'd look forward to hearing from you on there. Thanks again to BSG for the intro to Nir. Thank you, of course, to Nir for the incredible advice. We could have gone on forever. We were limited to 45 minutes, but I managed to get a little bit more out of it. And I thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed the conversation. I mentioned last week that I'm going to be shifting the podcast release slightly into 10 episode seasons. So when we hit episode 19 next week, then that'll be a break. And I'll pick up with what will essentially be season nine, I think. Or yeah, season nine or season 10. Um, A few weeks later, probably six weeks later. Also, in truth, because my wife is having a baby. (laughs) So I think I might need a little bit of time to adjust to that new lifestyle. But I just wanted you guys to be aware that the podcast will be back in several weeks and it will be bigger and better than it's ever been before. I really want to thank you so much for all of the support for everyone who continues to listen and share it and tell friends about it because that's the only way that podcasts seem to find new levels of exposure and that's through word of mouth with people who listen and enjoy it sharing with one another. So thank you so much for continuing to do that. If you enjoyed this episode, you can also pick up either of Nia's books, Hooked and Indistractable. They're both incredible. I recommend both. Um, I think I actually preferred the second one, but Hooked has been a global sensation and it sits in most people's bookshelves and certainly in all of the huge tech companies across the world in their offices. So I recommend either of those to get into if you're interested in looking more into the human psyche and how we can build new habits or how we can get away from negative ones that we don't want to continue to have our lives the next episode that's going to be coming out and episode 90 which i can't believe that we're going to be at episode 90 it's gone so quick but episode 90 is going to be with a very special individual called jeff brazier you may be familiar with jeff he's done so much 
during his time and during his career uh, on TV. He's very well known and has been very successful as a presenter on a bunch of TV shows, uh, largely his work that he does with ITV. What a lot of people don't know about Jeff is he's also a coach. That's a life coach. He's qualified as an NLP practitioner, neurolinguistics programming, I think. Uh, but he's also a coach at West Ham Academy and he does so many other things that we got into. He's got an incredible story, one that I related to very much. It's a very deep and powerful episode. So that's going to be coming next Sunday. It'll be the last in this season and then we'll get into some more exciting stuff a few weeks after that. But please look forward to that one. And in the meantime, stay positive, stay motivated and take flight.